bit of a nerve-wracking thing to have your older brother introduce you to a group of people, but I think that went pretty good. Thanks, Garrett. Um, if you have a problem with anything I say today, you can email me at garrett at ccskent.org as well. Um, I reserve the right to speak with his authority as long as you address me as such. So, um, But for those of you who I don't know, my name is Elliot. My wonderful wife, Anna, and I grew up here at CCS. Um, and short of that stint um, going to college and doing some college ministry, we've been a part of the community here uh, for our entire lives. Uh, we have two kids you might see running around, Juliet, who's four years old, and Judah, who's almost two. And we have one more boy on the way, so we are excited to have someone new that Judah can punch instead of me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, so much of our life has been shaped by our, our time here at CCS, my life in particular. Um, some of my earliest memories are of my Sunday school teachers. And um, there are probably a few of you here today that served in my Sunday school classes growing up, and you, you have played a significant role in my knowing Jesus and the Bible, and I'm so thankful for that. So I wanted to take a second to encourage you, uh, encourage you that serving in the children's ministry is an amazing, important opportunity. Um, the time you spend with the kids has a huge impact on their lives, and it had a huge impact on mine, and the truth that you teach has a lasting effect. So I want to thank all of you who do it. I am blessed to know that my children are growing up in the same training uh, that I received growing up. Um, and with that, if you are here and you did serve in my children's ministry classes growing up, I just want to say, if I say anything heretical, it's your fault. So, all right. So uh, go ahead and stand with me as we uh, look to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read God's word. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified." But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other, in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to, all, according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And as we read this morning and we learn, Lord, we, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would help us to be encouraged and convicted and drawn into a deeper understanding of your love and comforted um, if we're enduring suffering that you will in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So when Kevin called me to ask me if I teach this Sunday, he called and I think uh, word for word said, hey, I'm going to have you continue on our series in 1 Peter. Um, and I wouldn't do that if it was a complex passage, but it's not. And then I uh, went and I was in Pastor John's office a couple days later. And he asked what I was teaching on and he read it. And, and I think he went, hmm, this is a little tricky. So I don't really know how to feel this morning. And I don't think anyone is particularly excited uh, to talk about suffering, usually. Um, and I'm aware that, that as we think about suffering, there is different, we all think about something different and personal 
um, that has probably happened in our own lives because there's a lot of suffering to be had in this world and in a lot of different forms, um, and none of us get out without receiving some of it, right? Um, But with that, I believe that what God has for us this morning and where we're headed um, is he wants to remind us of our great living hope that we have in our suffering. And he wants to remind us that he is faithful to us in our suffering. So that's where we're headed. Um, and at the end of chapter 4, we find ourselves coming to the close of 1 Peter. So Peter has, is not saying anything new in this passage, uh, but he's reminding the beloved of some important things that he has said previously. And up to this point, he's written about suffering several times. Kevin has taught on it several times. There's about three distinct chunks where he's talked about suffering and instructed believers on how to conduct themselves in suffering, how to be a witness through suffering, and the hope we look to in our suffering. And so each of those are a part of our text this morning. We're going to talk about them. Um, But for those of you who have maybe, this is your first time joining us, you haven't been through the other studies in in 1 Peter, I want to give you a little bit of a context. Um, So Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor. And if you suck at geography like me, that's northern Turkey, uh, modern day. Um, And he's likely writing this letter from the city of Rome. And Peter's watching firsthand the rise of this, em- this emperor named Nero. If you're familiar uh, with Caesar Nero, you're familiar that he hated Christians. After denying faith himself, his, his hatred towards Christians turned brutal. And historians mostly agree that he started a fire in Rome that burned most of Rome. Um, he ordained it because he wanted to build a new city the way that he wanted it to be. But then he blamed the fire on the Christians, um, and, and what that sparked a widespread persecution of Christians. And Nero himself did some horrible things. Um, I won't be too, too graphic, but uh, one of the things that uh, just, I think, shows the complete depravity of this man um, was that he would use human bodies, Christians, as torches at his garden parties. And so Peter is writing at the, at the, um, with this in view. He's writing, seeing that this, this emperor, this dictator is, is rising and there's coming persecution and he's writing to the beloved to encourage them. So verse 12 said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So as, we, as Christians, we know that suffering is completely unavoidable. Peter says, don't be surprised by the trial, which is to try you, right? Trials and suffering should be expected in our lives. And on one hand, suffering is just a normal part of life, right? In a world full of sin, nobody gets out without being exposed to some form of suffering. But for those of us, for those with no hope in Christ, they don't have comfort in their suffering, right? So life is spent trying to avoid or mitigate the suffering. If I can just make more money, if I can numb the pain with pleasures, if I can just disconnect from the feelings and emotions that have to do with my suffering. But as Christians with hope in Christ, we understand that suffering is inevitable and in Christ it is actually redeemed. And we're gonna talk more about that. Uh, but Peter says, don't, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. Trials and sufferings will come, and it's not unusual. In fact, it would actually be unusual for us to not experience trials and suffering. Um, I like uh, other translations of this verse. The English Standard Version reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you, 
which reminds us of chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 in 1 Peter, which says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the fiery nature of these trials is meant to test us, to test our faith and to prove that it's genuine. And that, that, my my dad shared this morning as we prayed, that that would even be an encouragement to us, that our faith truly is genuine. Um, And it's also meant to refine us, which we're going to talk more about, to remove impurities and to make us holy. So what kind of trials is Peter talking about? I think in this, like I said, there's, we might think of, when I say the word trial or suffering, you may think of a lot of different things. You may think of a lot of personal experiences. Uh, but there's two specific types of trials that Peter's talking about in this chapter or, or in these, this chunk of verses. The first one is suffering that comes from persecution for being associated with the name of Christ. And that's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second one is suffering that comes from a judgment for our own sin. And I I want to give a spoiler alert. Uh, God is faithful to us in both. Whether uh, Whether we're a victim or we are the ones that are causing the suffering upon ourselves, he's faithful to us. He comforts us in our suffering Um, And he's faithful to use our suffering to discipline us as a loving father to draw us into greater holiness. So we're going to talk more about both of those things. Uh, Let's look at, at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So what Peter is first addressing, like I said, is he's addressing suffering that comes with being associated with the name of Christ. He tells believers, hey, rejoice. You're in good company. You're being associated uh, with Christ. That's a great thing. Um, I'm, I'm by no means an expert on Greek or a Hebrew or anything, so so. Uh, uh, but with that, I, I looked at this word, um, the word partake, uh, it, that the original Greek word is one you may be familiar with, or it's associated with the word koinonia, which is to fellowship, uh, to have communion with. So as we suffer in the name of Christ, we are fellowshipping, we're having communion uh, with our Savior. And we saw this uh, in the early church. In Acts chapter 5, uh, the apostles, they're preaching, the, the church is, is forming, they're, they're daily in the temple teaching about Jesus, and the, the council brings them in and says, hey, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And then they beat them heavily. The, the, the texture says they beat them. They likely beat them pretty heavily um, and then sent them on their way. And Acts chapter 5, 41 says, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here they go. They're heavily beaten and they're rejoicing uh, was that they were counted worthy to suffer shame, uh, worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They knew, hey, we're in the right place. We're being obedient to Christ, um, and they could tell. They could tell that we were Christians because we were preaching, so they beat us. The fact that they beat us was a telling thing about the fruit of our lives. Um, so there's, there's two ways to kind of talk about this worthiness. 
um, to be counted worthy to suffer, the first would be to, to be counted worthy by God to endure suffering for his name. And the reality is that not everyone gets to be entrusted with this type of persecution for Christ's name. So we ought to rejoice when we have the opportunity to represent him. Uh, but the second would be to be counted worthy um, by the enemies of God to be worth attacking, right? Um, it's a telling thing what an enemy chooses to attack. If, if a target is really worth uh, attacking, they'll put a lot of energy and time and ammunition into it. But if a target is of little significance, they might just leave it alone, which is a telling thing for us as we endure uh, trials. The, the Believer's Bible Commentary puts it well. It says, It is especially true that those who take a forthright stand for Christ become the object of savage attack. Satan doesn't waste his ammunition on nominal Christians. He turns his big guns on those who are storming the gates of Hades. So we might ask ourselves this morning, we might ask ourselves this question, am I worthy to suffer in the name of Christ? Um, or another question might be, am I a target worth attacking? Kind of the inverse of that. And I, and I think that's a valuable question. I think it's convicting for me. It's hugely convicting. We must take a look at our lives and ask, would anyone look at my life and determine by its fruit that I love Jesus? Do my neighbors and friends associate me with the name of Jesus? Do my actions and my words make any claim about the lordship of Jesus over this world? You may be familiar in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And as you look back to, to 1 Peter 4.13, Peter uses this phrase. He says, when the glory of Christ is revealed. That is when, when Christ comes and establishes his kingdom, which shall never end. And it's given to those, this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, is given to those who are persecuted for his name's sake. And, and that's where we're headed. That's where our hope lies. Uh, the coming kingdom of Christ and the eternity spent in the new creation is the hope that we have as we're being persecuted. Peter also says, Blessed are you for the spirit of God, or for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, being persecuted in the name of Jesus is a testimony to your genuine faith and therefore can be an encouragement to you. The enemy has identified you as a servant of, uh, of Christ and God, having counted you worthy to endure suffering in the fellowship with his name, gives you the Holy Spirit who will be your comfort through it. Let's look at um, verse 13. Or excuse me, verse 15. Uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Um, so there's a couple ways to interpret why Peter puts this list here, what he intends by it. And both are acceptable, and I think both are reminders to us. So, so the first would be a proactive view. Peter's telling you uh, Christians should not be criminals. If that's not obvious to you, I think it's pretty obvious, right? We all agree on that. Christians should not be criminals. Um, but also, to do these things and to suffer for them is not something to rejoice in, right? In other words, just because you're a Christian 
doesn't mean that your suffering is persecution. So let's get real practical. I'll, I'll, I'll make it practical for myself. If you're a jerk to someone at work and you're suffering the consequences of that, that has nothing to do with you being a Christian, right? It's not, not persecution. Um, the second view of this would be a reactive view. Peter may be saying, hey, when they come uh, to persecute you, he may get, be giving them instructions not to retaliate, right? When they kill those you love, don't be guilty of being a murderer. When they steal from you, don't be guilty of stealing back. When they barge into your personal life, don't retaliate and interfere with their per personal matters. In other words, persecution is not an excuse for lawlessness. And that's what Peter is, is telling us. This also reminds us of, of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that we should uh, not return evil for evil. Uh, Kevin talked about that a few weeks back. As we look at verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now, the name Christian uh, at this time was not one that was commonly used amongst the church. It was actually used by opponents of believers. Um, and it may have been intended to be an insult, calling them, you know, little Christ, Christians. Um, now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't really matter what the insult is. If somebody is, is purposefully insulting me, there's a temptation for shame. Uh, but Peter is encouraging believers, when, when they call you Christian, they are associating you with Jesus. Don't be ashamed of that. They're not insulting you. Um, you, you that, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, he's telling them, glorify God that the fruit of your life is showing them that you are a follower of Jesus, and they can even call you that. Uh, rejo again, rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer in his name. Um, I like the the NIV translation of this, this verse. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Looking at verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if he begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So up to this point, we've, we've focused on suffering because you're associated with the name of Christ. And Peter makes a shift here. He, he, he makes a shift to talking about suffering that comes as a result of our own sin, right? Uh, this phrase, judgment uh, to begin at the house of God, um, you know, I, I was contemplating that a lot, and it's, it's, it seems like a, a big deal, and it is. The house of God should be understood to be the people of God, Right? Um, God's glory does not, know, not dwell in the temple. It dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit. Um, and if you're like me, even after salvation, you're not perfect. Is anybody here perfect? No? Any, oh, lol. You put that hand down. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're not perfect. We're not, we've not yet attained perfection, right? And we will not attain perfection until eternity in the new creation when, when as a gift from Jesus, we're given that. Um, so if you're not perfect, you still sin. And if you sin in a fallen world, the world there's still consequences to our sin. Uh, but what I want to say is that God is so faithful to us that he even uses suffering that results from our own sin as a means to refine us, to remove impurities and to make us more holy. 
Um, I watched a, a seven-minute video on how they refine gold, so I'm basically an expert now, so you can trust me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I really didn't learn very much. Um, but basically what I, what I learned, put simply, is that gold is put into extreme temperatures um, that help to separate it from its impurities, from unwanted elements. And it goes through this process several times. And each time it goes through it, it comes out a more pure form of gold. Now, we, we, could, we could learn from that and imagine ourselves as that gold. When we come to Christ, we come with a lot of impurities. Sin has made us impure, and those impurities need to be dealt with. But in his grace, suffering is a place where they get dealt with. The heat gets turned up and we go in, not to be consumed by it, but so that he can separate the impurities from us and make us more holy. Um, and again, if you're like me, it doesn't just take one fire. It takes many fires often to deal with one issue. And that's the refining process. Each time the fire comes, we go in, he deals uh, he deals with some, some things, and when we come through it, we, we often find that something big has happened. We maybe find that he's freed us from a sin that has enslaved us for many years. Uh, we maybe find that he's helped us to depend on him in a more complete way. Or maybe he's revealed himself to us, this infinite God that we spend our lives getting to know. He's revealed himself to us in a different way. Um, and going into this fire is never fun, Right? But I've heard a lot of people say, and I would say myself, that even though it's not fun, I would never give up what God did in me through it. Amen? Now, now Peter puts this suffering in the context of judgment, right? Um, and through... Sorry, let me look at this for a second. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking and praying um, during, during worship... And um, I'm going to step away from my notes for a second um, and, and share something that I think God has, has put on my heart. Um, not using my notes is a dangerous thing for me, but, um, but I want to do it anyway. Um, as I was thinking about uh, the opportunity for shame when we feel insulted, right, there is also an opportunity for shame when we're, be, we're, we're experiencing the judgment for our sins, when we're experiencing uh, the, the loving discipline of our Father, uh, there is an opportunity for us to feel ashamed of what we have done and what the effect of those things are. And what I want to say to you this morning is that God is, is a loving Father, and he's using this process, like I've said, to draw you closer to him. Shame is not of God, right? A conviction that leads to repentance is of God, but con shame and condemnation are not of God. They are a tool of the enemy to draw you away from God. Um, so if you are, are experiencing shame and guilt for your sins, and you are having a, a desire to turn away from God, you, you want to you be away from this environment. You want to be away from your community that wants to talk to you about Jesus because you just feel too much shame. That is a tool of the enemy who wants to destroy you and keep you from a loving relationship with God the Father. The Father wants to draw you in, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ and you are feeling condemned, um, do not give in to that. Turn to your community. Turn to prayer. Um, turn to the environments that you know where you will experience the love of Christ. Now, I've used this word judgment, right? This is, this is a, a judgment um, 
uh, for our sins that God is dealing with. There's, there's an inevitable um, judgment that, that comes even for the believer as a consequence for our sins in this life. But though our, judge, or our final judgment, excuse me, is been dealt with on the cross, right? As a believer, we will not experience this eternal judgment. But though our judgment has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross, as believers, we still experience that disciplinary judgment because God loves us. I think that, um, I like the way the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, previously Peter referred to persecution and suffering as trials that refine and prove one's faith. Now he added that God allows persecution as disciplinary judgment to purify the life of those in the family of God. Those that are saved are not exempt from temporal disciplinary judgments, which are the natural consequences of sin. But with that, Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And I found a lot of comfort in, in these words as I've experiencing, experienced the chastening of the Lord. Um, and I think that I need it because I'm probably, knowing me, going to experience a lot more uh, in my life. Um, but it's a profound thing to realize that God is so loving and so faithful that he takes our mistakes even our mistakes, and redeems them in a way that makes us more holy. Praise the Lord for that. Now, with that, the judgment that we face as believers is different from those who do not believe in Jesus. Though our works will be judged, our salvation has already been judged on the cross. Through the cross, we will not see eternal wrath, the eternal wrath of God. And, and Peter uses this to contrast the experience of the unbeliever. If we as believers are judged, how much more will the judgment be for those who do not obey? Uh, as we look to Romans 2, 5 through 10, it says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What I want to call out this morning and remind us of is that this is a big deal, that Peter's contrasting for us uh, the, the, the small judgment that we experience as believers uh, compared to this massive judgment for those who are not found to be in Christ. Um, the judgment that comes for those who are not in Christ is terrible. It's terrifying. They will suffer the wrath of a righteous judgment of God. And this wrath is not unjust, right? It's not undeserved. We're all deserving of it. We too, who are believers, are deserving of the wrath of God because we're guilty of disobeying him, of, of denying him. But if you are a follower of Christ in the room, you know that by the grace and mercy of Jesus who endured the cross, suffering shame, judgment, and separation from the Father, 
we will never experience that judgment for ourselves. However, we must be honest about the intensity of the impending judgment for the non-believer. Eternity is literally at stake for people. And I need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded of that. And it's so easy for us to drift, especially in our culture. It's easy for us to coexist with people who don't know Jesus and not treat it as a big deal, right? Um, I'm guilty of this myself. I, I justify reasons why I shouldn't be a witness to, to people. Some, some, these reasons can creep in like, oh, well, we probably shouldn't talk about faith at work. Uh, faith is a really personal thing, and I don't know that person very well, so it's, it's probably not my job. Um, or, or they're pretty good people. I, you know, maybe they're a Christian. Maybe you know, back in the day they decided to follow Jesus, and they've just drifted a little bit. Um, or how often do we use this excuse? I'm just, I'm just waiting for the right time. Now, let me say this. That may not be an excuse. If you are prayerfully uh, seeking opportunity to be a witness to those around you, um, you may be waiting for the right opportunity. And I believe that if, if you're prayerfully seeking that, God will grant you that opportunity. Um, but if we're using these as excuses, this is a really big deal, and I am guilty of it myself. The reality is that this is an urgent thing and that the impending judgment matters more than any excuse that we can come up with. So I believe that God has put people in all of our lives that he intends for us to share his gospel with. So I just want to encourage you that the message is urgent. We don't know when Christ is returning and the judgment is intense. So let's prayerfully consider how we can continue to be a witness and to be a more faithful witness to others. Because judgment will come, but in God's grace, he's given us Jesus and he's given us time to tell the world about him. As it says in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So as, as we talk about suffering, as we talk about enduring suffering, I want to pose this question. Could it be that our attitude through suffering and persecution, even returning good for evil to those who persecute us, might be a witness to others, might draw them into a relationship with Jesus, even our persecutors themselves? Ward Wearsby writes, times of persecution are times of opportunity for a loving witness to those who persecute us. Looking back to 1 Peter, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So Peter's final instructions are going to be our final instructions this morning as well. To commit your souls to God. This is what we see Jesus do. We see Jesus do it in his very final moments before death on the cross. In Luke 23, 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. So as we endure sufferings, persecutions, whatever that may be that God allows into our lives, we must commit ourselves to him, understanding that he's using these things for his glory and for our good. Now, Peter's had a lot to say about how we should live as Christians, and he, and he says it pretty simply here. He says, uh, doing good, right? We, we talked last week about what that means to love one another, right? The one another's. Um, we should continue to do good to others no matter what sufferings may come, to love one another. 
And finally, Peter chooses to speak of God as a faithful creator here. The one that we commit ourselves to is the one that created us. Uh, But I think that's really significant because he's also the one that continues to create. He's also the one that is making us new, and he's also the one that's going to make all things new um, in, in the final days. I like this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Part of the Christian's faith is the settled belief that God is faithful and that we can rely on him utterly at this point, as at all others, and get on with the task of bringing his light and his love into the world. I love that part, at at this point, as at all others. We commit ourselves to God every day, uh, no matter if, what, what situation you're in. And, and as we close today, uh, this is where I wanna end. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what sufferings you may be experiencing. Some of you are suffering the consequences of your sin. Some of you are suffering as victims of other people's sin. Uh, Some of you are experiencing real active persecution because you're associated with the name of Christ. Um, And some of you may be coming out of a season of suffering, rejoicing in what you've seen God do in that time. Um, And as we end, as as we go into worship, I want to remind us to commit ourselves to God. Let's dwell on the hope Uh, that we have in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when his glory is revealed. Romans 8, 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Um, So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your hope. This is your living hope, that he is the faithful creator and one day he's gonna make all things new. The sufferings of this world will be no more. The impurities of your heart will be no more. With the coming of the new heavens and the new earth will be an eternity of joyful fellowship with God himself. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to to Revelation chapter 21. It's the last book of the Bible, almost the last pages. I've been so blessed on Wednesday nights we're going through the book of Revelation. um, And it's been such a blessing to get to dwell on uh, the coming kingdom of Christ. So we're going to jump to the end uh, uh, for this morning. In Revelation 21 verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be his... Excuse me, I lost it. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's such a beautiful scene for us to dwell on uh, this morning. That is what we have to look forward to. The reality is that for you, Christian, the sufferings of this life are the greatest sufferings that you will ever endure. Praise the Lord. Now, there's a temptation for me to end right there. 
Um, and, and for the Christian, that, that may be fine for now, but the text goes on. Uh, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now these are the words of the ones seated on the throne, right, of God himself. And he's warning of the judgment coming for those who do not obey God. That judgment is the lake of fire, eternal suffering and separation from God. And this is a, this is a harsh reality that for you non-Christian, the sufferings to come are far greater than any suffering that you will experience in this life. So as we close in a time of worship, I want to invite all of us in the room to commit ourselves to God. Um, I want to ask you, have you made the living hope of Jesus the foundation of your life? Have you surrendered all to him? And if that's true, then worship him. Declare your surrender. Praise his name. If you've never committed yourself to Christ, if you would not identify uh, as being a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you that you can do that today, that you can commit yourself to him. God is not only a just judge. Yes, there's judgment to come for those who do not obey, but he is also our compassionate savior. God does not will that any should perish. We just read that. So he took it upon himself to receive the just judgment due, dying on the cross and then coming back to life, showing his power over sin, death, and hell. Now, John 3.16 may be a familiar passage uh, to you, but I, I pray that, that you'll hear it with fresh ears this morning. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the, in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the God that we serve. This is the opportunity. If you've never committed yourself to Christ, I want to invite you to take that opportunity this morning. As we sing between you and the Lord, you can commit yourself to him. You can receive the forgiveness of your sins. You can ask him to be your savior and, and believe in Jesus and he will give you the gift of eternal life. There's gonna be a couple people up here at the front of the stage. If you'd like to pray with anybody, if you'd like to talk through that more, I'll be up here as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you're our comfort in our suffering. We thank you that you are so good to us that you use even sufferings we bring upon ourselves to sanctify us. Father, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, wherever they are at, whatever they are going through, Lord, uh, that you would be present, encouraging them, giving them peace that passes all understanding. And Father, if you're calling anyone here to yourself, I pray that you would open their eyes to your love and grace. Father, help them to see you as a compassionate Savior that loves them and wants a relationship with them. Please do a work in our hearts. Please do a work in their hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' great and holy name. Amen.